0: E.T.F. Prime is hosted by Nate Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the E.T.F. Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in E.T.F.s involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple, low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETFprime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETFprime.
2: All right, joining me will be Alex Morris, President and Chief Investment Officer of FM Investments, who I would say has to be one of the biggest ETF success stories over the past year or so. Uh, They launched their first ETF in August of 2022, and actually they launched the first single bond ETF period, Uh, but they launched this entire suite of single treasury bond ETFs And already, they're over $3 billion in assets. And I can remember some people uh, questioning these ETFs when they first came out. But investors clearly like this concept. And so we're going to discuss why these ETFs are resonating and get into some of the mechanics around how these work. And then also, FM launched a new ETF last month. It's actually a, a broader ETF, the FM Opportunistic Income ETF, ticker XFIX, so we'll uh, spotlight that. And then on top of everything else they have going on, FM recently filed with the SEC to offer a mutual fund share class of their ETFs. They want to bring their single treasury bond ETFs to the mutual fund wrapper. So uh, we'll get into all of that in just a bit. Also later, I'll be joined by Rich Powers, head of private equity product at Vanguard. You heard me right. I said private equity at Vanguard. I'm not sure many investors are uh, even aware that Vanguard has a, a private equity offering, but they do. They entered this space in 2020, really focused on institutional investors, but they then expanded this to qualified individual investors in 2021. And in true Vanguard fashion, they believe that if private equity is done the right way, so doing things like paying attention to fees, and taking a longer-term approach. They believe this can improve investor outcomes. And so I'm very interested to hear from uh, Rich on this. This just isn't a topic I've spent much time on. So certainly look forward to that conversation. Now to start this week, I have Vetify President Tom Hendrickson on the line with me. And not only that, I'm also joined by someone who probably needs no introduction for those of you who follow the ETF space. Jane Edmondson, who's now Vetify's head of thematic strategy. She was previously co-founder and CEO of EQM uh, Indexes, which Vetify recently acquired. And so we're going to spend a few minutes discussing that acquisition, and then we're going to dive into the world of uh, thematic investing and actually get some predictions from both Jane and Tom on uh, where thematic ETFs might be heading. So let's do that right now. Now, we're joined by the experts at Vetify,
1: a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
3: We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time.
2: Tom, great having you back on the podcast. How have you been?
3: Been great, Nate. Thanks for
2: having us. And Jane, I've got to tell you, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. I know we've met several times in person, but I've never had you on the podcast before, which is a huge miss on my part. So thank you for joining me. Well,
0: thank you, Nate. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, By the way, Tom,
2: I know we're going to get into uh, EQM indexes and thematic investing, but I have to ask you, I saw a uh, video out on Twitter last week of you ringing the bell at the Toronto Stock Exchange. I I have to know, what was the occasion?
3: Oh, thanks for bringing it up, Nate. So, so first off, uh, Toronto in the fall—just an amazing spot, vibrant city, beautiful scenery—and I know that you'll appreciate this. The, the sports scene is in full swing. The, the Jays are uh, in a wild card series. The Raptors are are well on their way to starting their their series. Uh, the, the the new, the new uh, basketball season, as are the Leafs. So the city was just electric, which was 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 awesome. And as I, I think you know, I'm I'm Canadian. And so doing business in Canada and being able to interact with the, uh, with the ETF community and the asset man- management community in the Canadian market is always just an honour and a privilege. So what we were there doing in Toronto was we hosted an ETFs in Canada event put on by Vetify, but hosted at our partners and friends at the TMX Group, owner of the Toronto Stock Exchange, at their facility. And it included a bell ringing opening the Canadian market last Wednesday morning we talked ETFs all morning. Dave Nadek was there. John Fee, Brian Coco, uh, shared sort of the Vetify perspective, obviously coming with a more U.S. angle to it, but also one with a with a global bent. Um, but they got to hear a lot about um, you know the ETF community's perspective from a from a Canadian asset manager. So it was a it was a jam packed day. Uh, I think we had more than 170 uh, representatives across the ETF community. So. We were doing what Betify does. We were up there uh, building community, listening, learning, and and ultimately trying to find ways to do more business in Canada. So thanks for bringing it up.
2: Yeah, I loved it. And for listeners, uh, you were front and center up there on the podium. I mean, look, I think just being up on the podium for any bell ringing, whether it's at the Toronto Stock Exchange or NYSE or whatever, is a huge honor and privilege. You actually were ringing the bell, which I loved. Um, I'll also tell you, I have, believe this or not, uh, and I've traveled a lot of places around the world. I have yet to go to Canada, so I, I have to make it up there. We're going to have to plan something. We're all, I'll head up towards uh, your neck of the woods. But uh, in any event, okay, so last month, Vetify acquired EQM indexes. And just to give listeners an idea here, uh, EQM powers ETFs such as iBuy, the Amplify Online Retail ETF, and the Granite Shares U.S. High Income ETF, HIPS. Um, I know EQM helped design the first blockchain ETF, BLOK. There's a lithium and battery technology ETF, BATT. And I could go on, but, Tom, just give us a quick snapshot of why this was attractive to Vetify.
3: Yeah, so the the, the first filter is, you know, what we're doing at Vetify. We think about, um, you know, people and capabilities that, uh, add to our mission, um, you know, ultimately transforming financial services from an industry into, to a community. So we're looking to bring together people who are are on board with that mission. And then and then certainly the values overlay, you know, a, a client centrism, you know, taking a bold approach to you know the world in which we operate, but also acting with high integrity. And and so that's that's where we start when we look at doing, um, you know, anything that's uh, inorganic in nature. And and certainly Jane and and EQM check all of those boxes in spades. And what it does is it really, as we get down to the capability level, it augments a very rich history of thematics at Betify. Um, So we've got over $10 billion of uh, thematic indices linked to Betify uh, indexes already, and this adds to that and the way in which jane was able to find success within the thematic space i think is complementary in nature to how how we found some success there and so we're we're thrilled to bring on the indices that that jane has built and licensed to a lot of incredible partners uh, some of whom we did business with some of whom are new to the vetify family but also tapping into jane's expertise and and trying to um plug her into a a, a broader team at vetify and and really have her shine as it relates to Building out the pipeline, thinking about what the the future of, of thematic indexing can be, not only from a U.S. perspective but but from a global perspective. So we're we're thrilled to add this capability as it augments the thematic indices uh, capability at Betify, which is complemented by you know of course our our benchmark series as, as well as our factor indices. So couldn't be happier to have Jane on board. Have long admired and respected what she's done and built and and look forward to uh, the next leg of the journey together.
2: Yeah, and to your latter point in the success of uh, EQM, Jane, I mentioned this at the top. I do think many of our listeners who closely follow the ETF space, they're certainly familiar with you and EQM. But for those who aren't, give us a quick snapshot of your background in yeah. this business you sure. built.
0: Yeah, so I was, the, as you mentioned, the co-founder of EQM Indexes, and it was kind of a small boutique developer of ETF indexes. Um, and we really tried to focus on custom and bespoke indexes, including things like thematics. Um, As far as my background, I've been in the industry for over 30 years. Um, I started out as a financial advisor and then ended up on the institutional side of the business as a quant PM. And then we founded EQM um, back in 2015. And um, as you mentioned, um, our first index was the index behind Amplify's uh, online retail ETF, iBuy. Uh, of course when we built that index back in two thousand fifteen, we didn't know that one day there was gonna be a pandemic. But I think it's just you know it's a perfect example of how powerful some of these themes can end up being. Um and as you mentioned, we helped develop the first blockchain index. Uh and most recently we just uh actually launched uh on behalf of a client a global music industry index, M U S Q, uh which focuses on the disruption of the music industry. So we've worked on some some really fun projects, but you know, I think underpinning um our approach was we were always Customer centric, um, you know, similar to Vetify, we didn't just create indexes for clients. We also really viewed ourselves as a partner in the process and helped them to support the indexes on the marketing side. So joining Vetify, it just made a ton of sense Um, to kind of take our growth to next level. Um, Our values were really aligned in what we wanted to do for the clients, and um, you know, I've been telling people it's it's. Now that I've uh, integrated a little bit here, it's like marketing and sales and research is on steroids, um, you know, coming from a small startup. So it's it's just been really a, a great transition.
2: I was looking at the uh, press release announcing this acquisition, and I actually want to read you both a quote from Vetify's Brian Coco, who's head of Index Products. I'm sure you both saw this, but uh, I just love the way that he framed this. And, Jane, I'd actually l- like to get your reaction to this. So Brian said, quote, A great investment idea can often remain just that, an idea. But with a well-constructed index, great investment ideas can become great investments. And, again, Jane, I'd love to have you talk more about that because most investors just see the end product, right? They see the ETF. But I love this concept of a great investment idea, Uh, never seen the light of day without firms like eqm so can you just elaborate on that a little bit like basically how you take an idea and construct an index around it
0: yeah and i think that was one of the ways we kind of carved a little niche for ourselves in the industry because you know we weren't trying to compete with the standard kind of market cap benchmarks but we really wanted to create thoughtful products that especially on the thematic side that really gave investors pure play exposure um to specific themes um and, you know, I think as far as, you know, some some of the elements of good themes, uh, you know, there's both good and pro- bad products out there. But, you know, what we we look at is it has to really be a long-term secular disruption. So it can't be a fad. It can't be, you know, sort of a flash-in-the-pan idea. You know, this has to be something that has long-staying power, um, and it's a long, long, good long-term investment. And then, you know, the other aspect of thematics, I think, is that, it has to be investable, so it can't be too narrow or, or niche, and there have to be companies that truly represent the opportunity in that theme. And then finally, I think, um, you know, the, another element of uh, thematics is that it has to be nascent. So, it, um, you know, it's a long-term theme. It has to have staying power, but you want to be early in the cycle, right? You know, the theme hasn't can't have already played itself out. So those are some of the elements of good themes, and, and to, to Brian's point, yeah, I mean – there's a lot of ways to construct indexes, and we're very focused on constructing them the right way, in a thoughtful manner. And, you know, some of it comes from my background, I think, as a portfolio manager. I, you know, you have to recognize that these are investment products at the end of the day and that people are using these to attain, you know, a lot of different financial goals.
2: Okay, so obviously thematics are a key focus for EQM, and I do want to get both of your thoughts on the future of this space. But I thought just to set the table Um, Jane, take us through where we're currently at with thematic ETFs. Like, what have you seen in the space over the past several years? Uh, What's the good? What's the bad? Just give us the current lay of the land here.
0: Right. Well, you know, I think thematic investing is still quite popular, Um, you know, and the popularity, I think, is really here to stay. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is investors don't really think in terms of style boxes. But they understand investment themes. I think it's the way people think, and especially this newer generation of investors, it really is something that resonates with them. And investors want to find a way to get pure play exposure to these long-term themes. You know, uh, the things that can really add some some oomph to your to your overall portfolio. And you know, I think people are becoming much more comfortable now on how to where to put these in a portfolio, whether it's a satellite exposure. Or there's a lot of investors that are using these um, almost as sector replacements. You know, instead of investing in, in retail, you invest in online retail. Instead of investing in, you know, traditional banking, you invest in things like uh, blockchain, blockchain and digital assets. So, you know, I think thematic vesting is here to stay. Uh, and, you know, it's stronger and is becoming even better, you know, as it's become much more competitive in the marketplace.
2: Tom, anything you would add just regarding the current state of thematic ETFs?
3: I would only add, Nate. I think it's just another good example, as we often talk about, of, of how um, innovative and how um, how much access the ETF wrapper has given us as investors. So the idea of of you know deconstructing style boxes and, and going much deeper into these these themes, or uh, the ability to get the peer play exposure, I, I just look at the list, and I'm always in awe of the now north of 3,000 U.S. listed ETFs. The amount of choice that this industry has given to investors and ways that they've been able to augment their portfolio, which were frankly um, inconceivable, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I, I just, uh, it, it's really exciting. It's great to be a part of. And, and I, I, I get excited
4: about the future.
2: All right. So everyone knows that my uh, crystal ball is completely broken, but that doesn't stop me from always trying to look ahead into the future. And Jane, look, you're a thematic ETF expert, and I'll ask you both this question, but I, I'm just curious what you see is the future of thematic ETFs. Maybe give us a, a prediction or two here.
0: Yeah, I think thematics are becoming even more sophisticated um, as as the themes become more mature. So, you know, you don't have to own all the names in a more mature theme. Um, it used to be that, you know, you, that was the case, but you can be smarter and more discriminatory about which names you own, whether it be through you know, factors or fundamentals, looking at things like valuation or even active management. So I think the themes and the way we invest in these themes has become much more sophisticated since the early days of thematic investing. And then, you know, now there's all these specialty sources of data that are specific to, you know, certain segments of the market. Um, And even AI is coming into play uh, these days as a way to select companies within certain themes. So there's a lot of tools available. So, you know, I kind of, this as thematics 2.0. It's going to become even more sophisticated, and investors are going to have even a better experience uh, in getting exposure to these various themes. W-
2: with that sophistication, one of the things that we always talk about on this podcast is just the need for ETF education. And I don't think this is um, only in the thematic space. I think in general, we've seen more sophisticated ETF products come to market. J- Jane, I mean, how does how does education play into that? You know, if you're an end investor, you're an end advisor. And some of these products are becoming more sophisticated, which I think is is probably good in the thematic ETF space because with that sophistication, there's probably more real investment substance behind these themes you'd mentioned before, um, you know, sort of moving beyond fads. I think that's a good thing. But uh, maybe talk just a little bit about the role of of investor and advisor education here as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And, you know, one of the, the nice elements of the ETF wrapper is the transparency um, that investors do know the names that they own. And so I think investors want that transparency and, and want to help. It helps them to understand what they're investing in. So investor education is very important. And, you know, particularly now with, you know, the regulators are looking into some of the naming rules to increase, increase the transparency there, you know, helping investors kind of know what they own. You know, it's been, uh, you know, certainly very topical with regard to ESG products, uh, but also with thematics as well. Uh, investors have to have you know, pure play exposure, there has to be a certain percentage, up to 80% of the of the funds have to be in that theme, and it has to be quantitative, and and it has to be, uh, you know, measure, measurable. So, you know, investor education is important, but I think the regulators are also stepping in to make it a safer environment uh, for investors as well.
2: Tom, any thoughts on the future of thematic ETFs? I'm assuming Vetify is uh, clearly bullish, or else you wouldn't be acquiring Firms like EQM, I know you had another uh, big acquisition of a thematic ETF player or the index behind them uh, earlier this year. Just w- w- what do you see in this space moving forward?
3: Yeah, we are bullish, Nate, and, and we're bullish because we see that that's what investors are, are, are looking for is different indexes to power investment product the space. Uh, we see that through a lot of the behavioral data that you and I often talk about on the Vetify platform, and we see that continuing. And, we, you know, like you said, you mentioned education. I think that's going to be as important as ever. First off, I would agree with everything that Jane said, so I'll try to just be only incremental. I think the concept, um, and this isn't only thematic ETF investing, I think it's probably applies to a lot of index opportunities, but the data sets and, and bringing your own IP, you know, bringing some of the IP that may be uh, new or, or novel in nature as it relates to some of the construction uh, of indices is, is something that we're starting to see. I also think that as some of these themes play out, like for example AI, which Nate, you and I have talked about many a time, um, as they mature, stratifying the theme and, and and providing different types of exposure to a broader theme as they mature, I think is something that's um, probably on the horizon. And then, you know, embedded in all of this is is the a partner model, one where you know an index provider or, or someone who's building this with you, as Jane mentioned really is along for the ride, um, you know, uh, right from ideation through iteration and launch, but then, you know, the continued education of why the index is constructed the way it is, the methodology, uh, how rebalance works, all these types of things. I think more and more um, a partner model uh, for the life cycle of the of the, uh, of the index is something that, that, that I'm predicting will happen in the future and, and accelerate.
2: Yeah, I think that's well said by both of you. I'll just add that I'm very optimistic on the future of thematic ETFs. I really like the very basic framework that Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas uses where he says, look, I- investors like to use thematics as a hot sauce in their portfolios, right? The core of the portfolio, maybe they're they, they're loaded up on low-cost passive products, or that's fine if they want to go the active route. But then around the edges, there's, they're using these thematic ETFs. And, and, Jane, I thought what you said was what was really good in that, you know, we have – move beyond um, just launching faddish products in the space. I think if we go back to 2020 and 2021, I think we would all agree there was some of that out there. But I think investors are now seeing through that. And there does have to be real investment substance behind whatever products are are launching. You mentioned, you know, Thematics 2.0. I I love that framework as well. But I, I think you're right. I think there has to be You know, longer term secular disruption here that you mentioned earlier, Jane, the the, the space obviously has to be investable, it has to be sustainable. All of those things I think are good. And I think investors now get that. And so if you're a thematic uh, index provider or an issuer who's launching a thematic ETFs, you have to know that investors, they understand this space now. It's grown. And so, uh, again, I'm very I'm very excited about the future of this space. And I think it's good that investors are, are doing more due diligence here. But in any event, um, Tom, Jane, really enjoyed the conversation this week. Congratulations on your new uh, partnership. I'm sure we'll be a visiting uh, again soon. But thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us,
0: Nate. Thank you, Nate.
2: That was Tom Hendrickson, president of Vetify, and Jane Edmondson, Vetify's head of thematic strategy.
1: The Income Strategy Symposium brings together experts and thought leaders to help you generate more income for your clients. Join us on Friday, October 27th, for this free event at etftrends.com webcasts income strategy symposium.
2: I'm now joined by Alex Morris, President and Chief Investment Officer of FM Investments, who currently offers nine ETFs, now over $3 billion in assets. That's been done in a little over a year. Pretty remarkable. And, of course, they launched the industry's first single bond ETF. So an ETF like T-Bill, their U.S. Treasury three-month bill ETF. But their single treasury ETF lineup as a whole has uh, really resonated. And then just last month, they launched the FM Opportunistic Income ETF, ticker XFIX. And not only that, they recently filed with the SEC to offer mutual fund share classes of all of their ETFs. That's right, mutual fund share classes. They want to go the other direction here. Uh, Alex is now joining me from uh, Washington, D.C. Alex, great having you back on the podcast.
5: Hey, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here.
2: Okay, so we are going to get into some of your ETFs a bit later, but boy, what a year for you and the firm. Like I said, going from literally zero to now over $3 billion in ETF assets. Uh, you just launched your first ETF in uh, August of last year, and uh, I'm sure you recall, I remember you being here in studio. I think that was in October of last year when you were really just getting started, you fast forward to today, and, you know, as I said at the top, I think FM has to be one of the biggest ETF success stories here recently. What has the past uh, year been like for you and the firm?
5: It's been it's been exciting, to say the least. When we came up with the, the idea for the benchmark series and to dip our toe in the water of offering an ETF, we always had high hopes. But, you know, most of finance is set up with high hopes that aren't met. So it's been exciting to do that. I think it's really a byproduct of offering this solution, a market needed. Back in October, you and I talked about innovation and ETF space primarily focused on equities, and that left a need in the fixed income space for better tools. And I think the market has responded, and you know, we're up to 11 now, believe it or not. All 10 points of the yield curve, uh, when you and I were talking, we only had the, the three major points of the 90-day, the 2-year, and the 10-year. Now we've got the whole yield curve equitized that you can access. And with XFIX, uh, we, we dip our toe into the actively managed space as well. And plenty more to come uh, in the coming weeks and months.
2: See, you're moving too fast for me. I have outdated data already on your uh, ETF right. I mean, it's,
5: of... it's weird to, to do that. And then we do this mutual fund thing. And yeah, you know, that's the exciting part, I guess, about ETFs. Is you can do these things quickly, and they can get adopted quickly. And then you can just keep providing them as opposed to, you know some of the other spaces where it takes three five years before anyone can even start investing, but yeah, that's obviously not the case in the FT, ETF space, and we're we're pretty keen to keep our foot on the accelerator uh, of innovation.
2: Okay, so I do want to come back and talk more again about the single treasury bond ETF lineup here in a moment, but I want to start with this mutual fund share class filing. So we have seen a couple of other issuers file to launch an ETF share class of their mutual funds. You want to do the opposite. You want to offer a mutual fund share class of your ETFs. And so I'd love to have you uh, just give us some background here. Why, why do you want to do this?
5: Sure. So most of the of who want to offer an ETF share class on a mutual fund business must first have a very large established mutual fund business to build ETFs on. We, just, we don't have that. So we weren't really natively in that game. But also many of them want it for the tax advantages and other sort of requisite things that are good for that business, for, for the established franchises they have. You know, our interest is perhaps a little different. We looked at the issues in running a mutual fund ETF, you know, multi-share class model, around one share class subsidizing the other. Obviously, with mutual funds, you tend to have multiple different fee rates for different share class types, and it gets very complicated. And then you have the notion of what do you do when you need to raise cash? in one, but you can't raise it in the other. But the the single treasury ETFs are are effectively cash equivalent anyway. We're able to settle those trades quickly and we're really dealing in the cash market. So we thought we had an opportunity to answer some of those questions in a very pure way, in a much more pure way than a fund that's gonna trade 150 different equities would. And as a result, we looked at it and said, oh, okay, well maybe this will answer the demand that we've had from folks in the defined benefit, defined contribution space who wanted us to launch a mutual fund version of T-Bill or X-Bill. And it didn't make a lot of sense for us to do that. And particularly when you track a single security, you pretty quickly see the differences between the two. And charging differential fee levels and having these different features didn't make much sense to us. But when we saw the opportunity to do it inside of a single account, where we could benefit from the scale of having a much larger basket of that one bond to trade, now all of a sudden, everybody started to benefit from that um, that outcome, and we were we thought that made a lot of sense to do.
2: So, really, this is about accessing that four hundred one k and four hundred three b et cetera market. Is that what, is that really the primary goal at the end of the day? It is. I mean, there are four tenths,
5: of, uh, uh, you know, four tenths of a percent of those plans today currently offer ETF capabilities. And that means there's 99.6% of the market that can't access our innovation, and we wanted to provide them solutions. And this felt like the best way for us to be able to do that.
2: You mentioned that the um, SEC's primary concern in in looking at the share class structure is the uh, share class subsidization, right, Um, where... The SEC is concerned that, say, actions of mutual fund shareholders will cause negative tax events or or higher transaction costs for ETF share class holders. And I'm just trying to think about how likely it is that the SEC might approve your structure. And, again, I mentioned a couple of other issuers who are attempting to offer an ETF share class of their existing mutual funds. And if you look at those SEC filings, both want to offer active ETFs, which, as I'm sure you're aware, the Vanguard SEC approval was only for passive products. And so, um, again, as, as I go through your filing, I'm just curious, can you talk more about those key distinctions between what you're trying to do and, and these other issuers? Uh, or, you know, do you think the SEC should allow all of these filings? Again, I'm just trying to gauge how likely it is that the SEC allows us to go through.
5: No, it's, a, it's a great question, and I wish I were a handicapper of, of everything. Um, it's hard to handicap the regulators. and I, I don't want to pigeonhole them into one set of answers or another. Um, I think if you look at the established mutual fund industry and the desire to offer an ETF, a lot of it comes from what Vanguard had done and had built a franchise where they were able to offer tax-free or, you know, reduced tax situations. And and rightfully so, many others want to eliminate that competitive advantage or at least have an opportunity to do that. The problem comes in the uniqueness of how an ETF is created, right? An ETF is very rude and hard is a mutual fund. It's a very special type that limits who can create those shares. And you you pick up some advantages of trading it on an exchange, but ultimately the math at the end of the day has to work out to be the same. The problem now becomes what happens when someone wants to redeem and they're going to get cash today from the mutual fund. The mutual fund naturally needs to have some additional cash on hand to meet some reasonable amount of redemptions versus what an ETF would be able to do. And would an ETF natively not need that cash, but now it has to hold it because the mutual fund share class kind of requires it to do so. And there's obviously a balancing uh, equation that needs to happen. And you know, it's a, a fair ask of ETF issuers, You know, should an ETF issuer be required to hold no frictional cash because it's possible that they don't need to? And the answer is, well, maybe some of the strategies, particularly actively managed strategies, would hold some amount of requisite cash anyway so they could opportunistically buy a a good value when they see one and i think it's those types of questions we're going to start to really get into at the sec and and i think by going at it with the single treasuries right which is a, a sort of sacred asset class it's just different than other bonds and certainly different than equities gives us an opportunity to answer these questions in a very pure very narrow fashion and I hope the SEC agrees with us that this is a, a good vehicle. And if yes, then we can start to address some of the other items and other asset classes that would naturally follow. But uh, so far, you know, we're, we're waiting for the SEC uh, to respond and, and we're excited for our conversation uh, with them. And we hope that there is a mechanism, whether it's our application, the other applications, which present compelling reasons on themselves, different from ours. Uh, And then uh, what I suspect will be many, many more that will come in the the coming quarters to really allow equal participation regardless of the security type you want to acquire or the account you want to put it in. Because I think that's really what we're trying to do for investors is give the maximum and broadest possible set of tools and the most universal investment experience regardless of where it may be. And we've created this alphabet soup of security types and account types and different parts of all code that we talk about. At the end of the day, we know investors want a simple, investable, understandable solution and finding a way to make certainly ETFs that folks understand and invest and follow strategies like the benchmark series do available universally seems to be consistent with that image and message and probably a good thing for investors and their advisors.
2: Um, Alex, before we move on here, I have to ask you, I saw in your uh, press release on this mutual fund share class filing that you also applied for a provisional patent on this structure. Um, How would you propose accomplishing that? Like, how would what you're doing be any different than Vanguard's expired patent? Because I'm just trying to understand uh, how you could patent something that, at least to me, looks pretty similar to a a patent that just expired. But uh, clearly, I'm no IP attorney.
5: You know, and uh, neither am I, so I, I don't want <laughs> to pretend to play one or tell you I, st- I didn't even say at a Holiday and Express last night to be able to, to play one on TV. Uh, but practically speaking, I think the, the way that patent was written allowed the flow to go one way, and in looking to reverse that, there are some unique differences in how we would handle uh, tax lot integration, uh, the taxable state of the accounts, what types of accounts you might work with, and how we would work with the APs and the TAs to make this work. Um, and rather like dealing with the SEC, you know, it's a, it's a long road with any government regulator. Uh, they can, they could agree with us. They could not. They could, uh, you know, have series of questions that we can answer, uh, and then try to come to a conclusion or a resolution on. Um, but we shall have to wait and see as well. Um, unfortunately, it's one of those, I wish I had better answers and a, and a better view. I think it's, um, we, we put the paperwork together. We thought it made sense, uh, and I think it does. And you know, we hope that the combination of these two concepts together would give the SEC enough reason to approve their side, knowing that if they made an approval for us, it wouldn't be broadly used uh, across the board, and that it would have some control mechanism on it, which would probably be for the safety of everybody.
2: No, I appreciate the caden-ness on uh, both of those responses in terms of how the SEC might handle this, and certainly the uh, the Patent Office. Um, Okay, so in terms of your ETFs, I know many listeners are pretty familiar with the uh, single treasury bond ETF lineup, but I still want to pick an ETF here and just have you explain how it works and, and how you view the the merits. And so I picked U2, which is your U.S. Treasury two-year note ETF. And there's two things I'd like you to cover. So again, first, just explain what this ETF is doing. But then I think more importantly... Explain why someone would own this versus an ETF like, say, the iShares one-to-three-year Treasury ETF.
5: Sure. Um, so, so you two, uh, the, the ETF, not the band, uh, <laughs> invest in the on-the-run two-year Treasury, which is a very liquid, well-known issue, part of many common spreads, the 210-year spread, et cetera. And it's a well-known point on the curve. And it behaves just fundamentally differently than, say, that one-to-three-year, which has a pretty wide swath of the curve, and the duration difference between one, two, and three is meaningfully different. The volumes traded on those securities meaningfully different. And when you look at the -the on-the-run versus the basket of other securities that might be aged somewhat, right, a a two-year bond could be the -the on-the-run that we buy. It could be a 30-year bond that's 28 years old and has different characteristics, different coupon rates, different ways of behaving. And we wanted to focus on the on-the-run because it's liquid. So even back on March 8th, 2020, when a good chunk of the bond market seized up for a few days, including some of the the age treasuries, there was still liquidity at a fair price to be had in the on-the-runs. And we felt when we offered the tool set that was very precise, where you could build your exact position on the yield curve, knowing that you were going to always stay at that point on the yield curve, you needed to be in the most liquid and the most quoted side of it. And that's, that's why we offered that specific item. And now when you think about the role that we do, we do it at size and scale. So we can get an economy of scale not generally available to the average investor. And if you're building a ladder portfolio, as opposed to a ladder where, say, the top rung naturally falls to the bottom and you just keep putting new rungs on the very top, in this case, we're just a rung that constantly stays in place. So you could set in your rebalancer, this is the position I want to take on the yield curve. And you will stay exactly in that space because we do that rebalancing for you. Whereas, say SHY will move around, where its average maturity duration will bounce between the extremes and sit somewhere in the middle. But it isn't as it's not net; it is not consistent, and it wouldn't be as consistent as say U2 or Bill or UTR, which sit on the, the barbell end of that exact range.
2: But again, if I'm an allocator and I just I really want to boil this down. And I'm looking at say U two versus SHY, I mean, what are the key considerations here? I, I I it makes perfect sense the way you're describing this and I I think you're offering much more surgical precisions. But if I'm if I have those two ETFs sitting in front of me, what should my decision making process or my thought process be in making that allocation decision?
5: I think it's are you trying to buy the two-year, right? What you see on TV, mm-hmm. and do you want the precision of knowing? Okay, I'm going to have an average maturity duration, knowing my whole portfolio, and this is how I'm going to achieve it. Or am I just looking for some broad treasury exposure? Where you know, unfortunately, diversification, the treasury market doesn't really much help. It's the same issuer, right? The SPY at least diversifies over 500 different issuers of stock. Here, the treasury department is the only game in town. So. It, you get a one- to three-year spread, but you're not, you're not diversifying. You're just diversifying the coupon, and you're diversifying away some liquidity. So if you care about knowing that there's going to be a bid and that the price action that you're going to experience in the ETF is what you're seeing on TV, is what you're hearing folks talk about, and is consistent, U2 is the answer for you. If if you worry less about that, U2 is still a great answer for you, but then some of the other multi, uh, multi-treasury products might make some sense. Our theory is why would you not want that level of precision and control for equal cost and for, you know, equal or higher coupon, which tends to be the case with U2 versus uh, some of the products that are spread out over a wider range of issuances?
2: You mentioned the uh, role earlier, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds. And actually, I believe I asked you this last time we chatted, but I think with what rates have done over the past uh, year or so, I think this is probably more relevant now. And the, the, the question is, is there any risk of what I'll call negative roll yield, where once bonds go off the run, uh, they're going to sell at a slight discount because there's a bit less liquidity, right? And so if we think about this environment we're currently in with rising interest rates, uh, newly issued bonds have a higher coupon. And so I, I would think the ETF basically has to sell low and buy high. Again, we're talking, you know, very slight discounts. Does that make sense? Is, is that an issue at all? So it certainly
5: can be. Uh, right now, most of the deal curve is above its break even point where you're actually earning enough income and interest from the coupon or accretion for the bills between when you buy and when you sell that you're paid to do that. Uh, and that break even point, you know, in the 10 year tends to be about three and a half and the two year well, about the same. And both of them are trading well north of that. So you're actually incentivized to do this. And of course, when rates come down, the one thing you want to be doing is extending your duration. Mm-hmm. So we give you that opportunity. And, but indeed, if you look at you know how the rules work when interest rates are low, that negative rule yield you know does have some modest impact. We mitigate some of that with just the efficiency of the trading that we have. So part of the rule yield would be the number of bonds you get is less, and then you pay two spreads. By efficient trading, we can reduce the cost of the spread. We'll mitig- mitigate some of that. And now with rates so high, we're actually earning enough current income that... It's, you're incentivized to do the role both from a current income standpoint as well as from the duration extension um, point when the when eventually rates do come down. Now, obviously, there is a point where rates could go up so fast that that becomes an issue. But but thankfully, that's not been an issue of late across the curve.
2: Okay, before I let you go, um, tell us about this new ETF that launched last month, the FM Opportunistic Income ETF, ticker XPEX. This is not a single treasury bond ETF. What does this do and uh, why the decision to expand here?
5: Sure. So XFIX uh, runs a strategy that my, my partner and colleague Pete Baden has been running for over a decade. Five morning star morning-star strategy in an SMA that focuses on generating income. So in the same way that folks would buy Teagle Expo for income, this does it in the credit markets. Uh, it's, it's opportunistic. So it's not required to buy, uh, to buy just one type of security and it, Thinks like a value investor, but as opposed to being required to buy value stocks, it it operates in the fixed income realm. And as a result, Pete put together a great track record for folks who want to buy fixed income, who want that fixed income to generate a meaningful return for them. And we can, we want to understand what we're doing beyond just, you know, a lot of bond, garbly gook that tends to happen in a lot of these actively managed fixed income strategies. Uh, so Pete, Pete put this track record together, been running it in the SMA. You know, it's, been one of those best-kept secrets for a long time. Uh, and best-kept secrets are great for some, uh, but in this industry, a larger AUM that tends to benefit both current holders and future ones. Uh, so we brought it out as the first of our actively managed credit items. We expect to do more of those next year as we take some of the strategies that we've been doing for institutional and advisory-style clients for, the, for a long, long time and making them more accessible. You know, it's increasingly Uh, The technology to do SMAs for bonds is increasingly available, but fewer and fewer folks really want to see 200 QSIPs sitting in their portfolio. They're getting more comfortable with ETFs and now with how the ETFs can have these types of strategies. And the market makers are sufficiently matured in in the credit market. It really makes a lot of sense to do this. We can get more efficient trading uh, for everyone. We can reduce the overall cost of delivery of the product. And we have the flexibility in the wrapper to do so in both a tax efficient way as well as a rebalancer friendly way, which bonds and rebalancers have just been mortal enemies for a long time, which has really made adoption of those strategies limited. And this, we think, will give folks access to the credit markets and to a meaningful return stream in a way that's accessible and uh, much more tailored to how folks want to consume it in today's marketplace.
2: Well, Alex, we'll have to leave it there. Congratulations on all of the success. Uh, Best of luck to you on the Mutual Fund Share Class Initiative. I'm very interested to continue uh, tracking that. But thank you for joining me this week.
0: Thank you so much.
2: That was Alex Morris, President and Chief Investment Officer of FM Investments. Are you looking for a
1: passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF Ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit FoolETFs.com slash ETF Prime. That's FoolETFs.com slash ETF Prime.
2: I'm now joined by Rich Powers, head of private equity product at Vanguard, who's obviously one of the world's largest asset managers, currently over $8 trillion in global assets. And I know many listeners of this podcast are very familiar with Vanguard's ETF lineup, and certainly their mutual fund offerings as well. But you might not be aware that Vanguard also provides access to private equity. This is in partnership with Harbor uh, Vest, as we'll get into. Uh, Rich is now on the line with me from Pennsylvania. Rich, always a, a pleasure. Thank you for joining me.
4: Nate, thanks for having me on again.
2: Okay, so as I understand it, uh, Vanguard entered the private equity space back in early 2020 through this partnership with Harbor Vest, And initially, this was aimed at institutional clients, but then in 2021, You expanded access to qualified individual investors as well. And so to start, perhaps give us some more background here, just in terms of why Vanguard got involved in this space and talk about the current offering and who can access this.
4: Sure. yeah. So uh, we've been looking at the private equity markets for a number of years in terms of bringing a product to our clients that could help them improve investment outcomes. And improving investment outcomes is always where we start. Uh, The marketplace has evolved quite a bit. The demands of our clients have, have evolved quite a bit, and, and so uh, you know, kind of the stars aligned in terms of uh, our ability to get comfortable with the, with the market, and uh, what we're able to uh, find in terms of partnering with a great firm like Harborvest to bring an offer to our clients. Uh, you know, a couple of interesting things that kind of happened along the way between when we first started looking at this, and ultimately when we we got involved. Is you can look at the private equity market and its representation of the global equity market cap. And today, it's close to 10% of the total equity market cap is held in private companies, and so more and more of our clients, uh, the, the equity markets, was not accessible to our, our clients. And so, this is a way for us to uh, bring that to them, improve it, investment outcomes. And in terms of like what what we're doing here with Harborvest, uh, this is a what, what they call in the industry a drawdown fund, so a conventional kind of closed-end fund that's available for qualified purchasers. And what clients end up doing is they commit a pool of capital. That capital is called over a couple of years uh, and allocated across the in, uh, investment portfolio of HarborVest. Uh, and and what, they're, what we're trying to deliver in this product is really a turnkey solution. Uh, it's diversified across different strategies, so primary and secondary strategies. It's diversified across different stages of companies, be it growth or venture or buyout, and it's diversified globally. And so uh, this is a, a broadly diversified offer that's available to our personal investor organization, which is both self-directed and advised clients, as well as our institutional advisory services business.
2: Okay. And tell us a bit more about HarborVest for people unfamiliar with that firm.
4: Yeah. So Har- HarborVest has a long, long history of investing in private markets, about a 40-year 40, 40 history, uh, allocating capital uh, in the private equity market, but also in private credit and other, other segments of the market. Uh, And they're a private partnership, and so uh, their alignment in terms of uh, the results that they deliver to their clients clients is very, very clear. They have a very long-term focus, and their track record's uh, a pretty compelling one. And certainly that, among many other factors, um, got us very interested and ultimately uh, allowed us to partner with the firm.
2: All right, Rich. So uh, for better or worse, even though Vanguard is one of the world's largest active managers, I think most investors think – low-cost index-based investing when they hear Vanguard, right? That uh, if you buy and hold a diversified low-cost portfolio of, say, Vanguard index-based stock and bond funds, over the long run, you'll be in pretty good shape. It's certainly fine if you want to work in some low-cost active management as well. But I don't think most investors think private equity when they hear Vanguard. And so I'd love to have you explain how this fits into Vanguard's uh, overarching investment philosophy. It, essentially, what's Vanguard's case for private equity?
4: Yeah, uh, Nate, fair, fair fair question. I think uh, for a lot of investors, beginning and ending in terms of building a portfolio around an ETF or index strategy is, is probably the, the right answer. But for, for a number of clients who have the uh, risk tolerance and the time horizon, uh, the opportunity to invest in active managers and uh, private equity managers it uh, can be rewarding, right? And so we always, I'll go back, we always start with the investment merit of a strategy. And in the case of uh, the the private equity markets, uh, the literature here is pretty compelling, that that the results can be uh, very rewarding for an investor who's able to go out, invest in the private markets, and select top quality managers. But I think that last point is a really important one, right? Uh, it's It's not okay simply to invest in private equity and get the market beta and be satisfied with that because there's lots of cost and complexity that go into the private markets and so most investors wouldn't be any better off by choosing the median private equity manager and so you you need to be able to identify those firms that are going to be able to deliver value for your clients over the long run and this is where the long history of Vanguard working with active managers comes into play we've as as we've talked about in the past we have 40 plus years of working with great public equity managers to deliver value for our clients we've ported that skill over here to select uh, a really great partner in Harborvest to to do the same for our clients but in the private markets and so lots of lots of history here for us to point to in terms of our ability to differentiate uh, the solid manager from the great manager
2: i'm curious since this offering has been live so a, a few years now What are you hearing from investors on why they do or why they don't decide to add private equity to their portfolios through you? Because I would say the prototypical Vanguard investor is a uh, special breed, right, in a good way. And so I'm curious how they're viewing this offering.
4: Yeah, I think for those clients who who have decided to take advantage of the offer, uh, things like the excitement of being able to access strategies that were historically only available to very large and sophisticated institutions was compelling. Uh, a number of our clients knew who HarborVest was, and so their reputation and their track record preceded them and certainly uh, has been intriguing to those clients, and that's allowed them to uh, uh, ultimately get comfortable and make allocations here. Uh, obviously, I think the most important reason why an investor has decided they wanted to uh, take advantage of this offering is the fact that there's a potential to improve investment outcomes and performance here, right? So depending upon the success of the investment portfolio and the allocation a client makes, you could be talking about adding about 100 basis points of total return to an overall client portfolio. And in an environment where returns are relatively low, uh, that certainly has uh, lots of appeal. Now, now, not not everyone is taking us up on this who, who qualifies, and uh, that that's not surprising to us. And I, I would bucket the reasons why into three groupings. So, the first reason why investors haven't taken advantage of the offering is the illiquid nature of the product, right? It's a 14-year term fund. Uh, and even though your capital isn't locked up for a 14-year window of time, uh, that that that, uh, that risk, I think, for some clients uh, certainly uh, has kept them at bay. Uh, complexity is probably uh, an- another reason why clients have chosen not to allocate yet. Um, for example, you need to file tax extensions uh, and There's a lot more paperwork involved in signing up for a private equity fund versus, say, buying VTI uh, on Vanguard.com. And then the last thing, and this probably won't be surprising to you, is education. Mm -hmm. For a lot of our clients, private markets are a new concept or something they haven't invested in before. And so, as you can imagine, we spend a lot of time educating them on what it is, what it's not, the value prop, and what you need to be aware of.
2: In terms of that education, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but one of the criticisms uh, that is commonly heard regarding private equity is how uh, the underlying investments are marked to market, or I I guess not marked to market. And I can actually see some behavioral benefits here in that optically, uh, PE provides a smoother ride because of that. It doesn't appear quite as volatile. Do you have any comments around that topic? I I guess that would be the pro that I just cave. Are there cons here?
4: Yeah, uh, I think uh, it's, it's, it's an education uh, conversation, really, for us. And, you know, unlike the uh, public equity markets where you can get second-by-second second valuations, every every hour the market is open uh, for those companies, the private markets, most frequently they're valued on a quarterly basis. So I, I think one thing to always step back and think about is, is the economic value of a given public equity changing second-by-second? Second? It's not, but it, it, what, what the valuation changes reflect is the perception of – secondary market participants on the value of the cash flows that that company is created. Uh, there's not a secondary market for incorporating that type of perspective for um, private companies because they're pretty closely held. And so uh, you have to rely on these quarterly valuations. And there's a variety of mechanisms that are done there. There's discounted cash flow. There's an asset-based approach. There's a market comps approach to valuing. So I, I think there's a uh, the critique probably is lots of discretion is left to the owner of the company to value that business. And, and maybe that leads to overvaluing uh, when markets are really frothy and maybe not marking it down as much when, when markets start to slide. But but I think you, what you always have to come back to is, what are the incentives for a p- private equity owner to, to do that, right? Uh, ultimately, the way they're gonna create value for their end clients, their limited partners in their fund is through some type of a realization of selling that company either to another strategic buyer or through an IPO. And if they've been carrying it at a higher valuation than it deserves, uh, that's going to be reflected when that transaction happens. And that's just simply not, it doesn't really happen with with great regularity in, in this marketplace. And if it did, uh, the jig would be up for that uh, that manager in terms of their uh, bias towards uh, higher valuations. And so uh, I understand why there could be some skepticism here, but I think the, the data would prove that uh, you know, valuations are, you know, th- there's kind of an art and science to it, uh, and, and by and large, the valuations are, are on target.
2: Is there any concern that as access to private equity broadens through platforms such as yours, maybe its return attributes erode? That's something we always uh, hear in the ETF space, right? That as access to asset classes or strategies is, uh, quote-unquote, democratized, there's this risk that any potential alpha gets arbitraged away. I don't know that I fully agree with that, but I'm curious, any thoughts around that as it pertains to the private equity space?
4: Yeah, I understand the line of thinking there. And you know, certainly we can look at the public active equity manager universe as, as a, an example where perhaps some of that intense competition uh, is challenging, right? Uh, they're encountering ubiquitous availability of data on all the underlying companies, the, the high level of processing available in the market by fundamental managers or quants to take and distill all this publicly available information into what ultimately the value of a company should or shouldn't be. And as a result, what you see is the the difference in the performance for the best performing U.S. equity active managers and the worst performing can be measured in hundreds of basis points. Um, and, and that respects that over a universe of around 4,000 or so public companies. Uh, if you look at private markets, there's about 60,000 TE backed companies in the U S and they don't file public reports we, as we were just talking about, and they don't hold analyst calls. And so there's a real opaqueness and information asymmetry and and really highlights the importance of access and relationships for many of these private equity managers, um, to create differences in return profiles between the best and worst managers. There, you're talking about the difference between the best and worst manager can be measured in the thousands and thousands of basis points. And so, um, you know, there's no doubt there's going to be some competition that uh, as more and more investors invest in the private market, it's going to make it more challenging for private equity managers to repeat what they've done in the past. Uh, but certainly, I think what we have to recognize is there's a fundamentally different marketplace that they're operating in than, say, what a, an active public equity manager is dealing in.
2: Rich, just a couple of minutes left here. Obviously, every investor is different. And so this isn't intended to be investment advice in any way, shape or form. But I'm assuming Vanguard believes private equity should come out of the equity sleeve in a portfolio. Is that correct? So uh, say someone has a 60-40 portfolio and they want to allocate maybe 15% to PE. Should that come out of the 60
4: yeah, I mean, I appreciate the disclaimer at the outset there that this is not advice in any way, shape, or form. But, yeah, I mean, we've done work here, and I think of the academic evidence would suggest that uh, the same drivers that drive returns for public companies exist on the private side, just at different timelines, as we kind of talked about before. And hopefully that's cash flows that the underlying companies uh, are generating. And so when we engage with clients, I think uh, there's a, uh, a conversation that starts with, If you're going to allocate to private equity, that allocation should come from your public equity portfolio, and the driver of how much really depends upon that person's tolerance for illiquidity and for active management. So somebody with a really high tolerance for both of those, maybe 30% of their equity portfolio should be allocated to private equity, and for someone at the opposite end of the spectrum, but still that, that... um, maybe it doesn't have as much uh, liquidity, illiquidity risk or, or tolerance or the tolerance for measure. maybe a good starting point is 10%. Once you start doing making allocations smaller than that, I think it ultimately kind of calls into question how much value can be derived from a private equity allocation. But um, you know, I think what we see in terms of the client conversations we have is kind of 30% is kind of towards the, the upper end of what, what clients would feel comfortable with and Ten percent is is usually kind of a starter position for those clients who are maybe less familiar or just have a lower tolerance.
2: And you alluded to this uh, earlier, but just to be clear, for investors who are interested in this uh, offering, how exactly do they access this this private equity uh, platform? And are there any minimums or other limitations uh, in terms of the investment? Just any high level nuances.
4: Yeah, this is a different type of product relative to all the other products that you all, you all are familiar with the ETF and mutual fund form. So uh, this this uh, fund is only available within our personal investor organization for both the self-directed and advised clients who are qualified purchasers. That, that, like, a shorthand way of thinking about that is they have more than $5 million of investable assets. And then it's also available to our institutional advisory services clients Think of them as endowments, pensions, and foundations, where we act as a bit of an outsourced CIO. So it's it's not available across the entire Vanguard platform; only only through those two businesses. Uh, Yeah, the other kind of dimensions to to the fund are, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a a 14-year life. Capital is called over the first few years of time. You're not putting in the capital right away, but uh, the capital and then it's distributed over time. But a 14-year life for the funded funds investments, and and then. yeah, the, those capital calls happen over the that front half of that the time horizon, so call it the first five or so years. So a, a client, say, if they're committing a million dollars, they're not allocating a million dollars right away. It's drawn down over the first five five, five or so years as HarborVest is making investments on their behalf.
2: Well, Rich, really appreciate the uh, insight. Again, I think this will open some investors' eyes hearing about Vanguard's private equity offering. Very interesting. Thank you for joining me.
4: Uh, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you again.
2: That was Rich Powers, head of private equity product at Vanguard. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Tema ETFs. If you would like to learn more about the CANC Oncology Fund, you can visit TemaETFs.com slash CANC. Next week, I'll be joined by Rich Lee, head of program and ETF trading with Baird. He's going to cover a number of ETF topics. I'll just tell you, if you haven't heard Rich before, You're in for a real treat. And then Ed Rosenberg, head of ETFs and fund management at Texas Capital Bank, will spotlight the Texas Capital Texas Equity Index ETF. Can't wait for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.